Hello, and welcome to the National Affairs Podcast. I'm Dan Weiser. And I'm Daniel Kane. And we are the assistant editors of National Affairs. National Affairs is a quarterly journal of essays on domestic policy, political economy, society, culture, and political thought. It aims to help Americans think a little more clearly about our public life and rise a little more capably to the challenge of self-government. This published jointly by National Affairs Incorporated and the American Enterprise Institute. Today, we're excited to be joined by Michael McShane. Mike is the director of national research at EdChoice and the author of the 2014 book, Education and Opportunity. Prior to his work in education policy and school choice advocacy, Mike worked as a high school teacher in Montgomery, Alabama. For our winter 2021 issue, Mike wrote a fascinating essay titled, Blending Home and School. In his piece, he examined the recent emergence of a hybrid homeschool movement in America, which aims to strike a balance between in-person and home-based education models. This underexamined movement, Mike argues, has much to offer and could come to play an important role in the work of strengthening American communities and families. But he warns that the future of hybrid homeschooling is far from certain. Faced with an increasingly hostile regulatory environment, the viability of the nascent movement will depend in large measure on the willingness of its advocates to organize and seek out alliances with the broader school choice movement. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. All right, Mike. So since kind of in your piece, you're talking about a new education movement, just to start off with for the first question, give us an overview of kind of what is hybrid homeschooling and how is it different from how Americans traditionally think about homeschooling? That's great. Yeah. So hybrid homeschooling at its essence is just a sort of alternative school calendar where children attend school school schedule, where students attend traditional formal schools for some portion of the week and then are schooled at home for part of the week. And now this looks different in schools all across the country. Very common iterations of this are like two days at home and three days at school or three days at home and two days at school. It's something that we see in the private sector amongst public charter schools and also in traditional public schools across the country. So in our minds, the sort of traditional schooling that we have, and again, private schooling, traditional public schooling, others, is kids go to school for five days a week, roughly from eight to three. The teacher, the school is generally in charge of instruction. They decide what is taught, how it's taught, where it's taught. And a hybrid model takes a little bit of a step back from that. It's not full homeschooling, where if we think about full-blown homeschooling is where what is taught, how it's paid for, and where it's all controlled by parents. This is a sort of midway point between those two, where Part of the education takes place at home. It's often partially funded by parents. And what is taught is done in sort of combination between parents and educators. And so in explaining it, hybrid homeschooling, you sort of make the case that it, it's, it's sprung up. Its history could be traced to this group of what you call middle-income pedagogues who are composed of this sort of group of families who are unsatisfied with, for whatever reason, with the public and charter and private options that were available. Could you tell us a little bit about that group and and why they weren't satisfied with the options? For sure. A lot of hybrid homeschooling started by homeschoolers. And what you had were homeschooling families who, as their kids aged, they hit sort of middle school, but especially hitting high school, the families grew less comfortable in the subject matter that they had to teach. So they felt very comfortable with their kids in second grade, and you're teaching them to read, or you're teaching them history or science or whatever. They, They felt capable of that. But when they're starting to hit chemistry and calculus and AP European lit or whatever, they started to have to seek out different tutors, different work. So one of the schools that I talk about a bit in the piece is Grace Prep, which is in Arlington, Texas. And the story of the small number of families there is they were driving all around the Dallas Metroplex trying to kind of piece together, okay, we feel comfortable teaching this, we're not comfortable teaching that. They were banding together with other families to say, oh, let's go in on like a tutor together. And eventually they said, well, wait a second, what if we just sort of start a school and have the school provide these things that we're less comfortable doing, but we'll keep doing 
the things that we're most comfortable doing at home. And it's sort of a best of both worlds for everybody. We'll be able to have sports teams. We'll be able to have a lot of the familiar trappings of school without having to go kind of whole hog into a full-time five-day-a-week private school and all of the things that go along with that. Classic American associationalism. I mean, I right? Love it. Yeah. yeah, for um. sure. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, that's what's cool. I mean, part of why I love telling this story and talking about these schools is how it really is something that we see across the country. I mean, the genesis that I got for writing about hybrid homeschooling, and I should, this is the point where I should probably plug, I have a new book on hybrid homeschooling coming out in the middle of March, hybrid oh, homeschooling, great. hybrid homeschooling, a guide to the future of education. I'm showing it to the guys here on over Zoom. I'm, <laughs> if only we had video. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, forgive our listeners that you can't hear that, but I promise you it is a very enticing book to look at, but hybrid homeschooling, a guide to the future of education available at your local neighborhood online bookseller. <laughs> but actually what prompted me to, to do this was I, I spoke with someone a few years ago. This is probably back in like 2018, a woman by the name of Carrie Beckman, who runs, who started this group of the Regina Chaley schools, which is a network of Catholic hybrid homeschools headquartered in Atlanta, but have been spreading all over the country. I also write a column for Forbes. And after we had chatted, I was like, oh, this is kind of interesting. I'm always looking for fodder for my column. So I, I just wrote it up and, and said, oh, here are some things. And I'm a kind of policy guy by training. And I was like, this might have some interesting implications for policies, like how we classify a school and sort of all of those attendant issues around education policy. And I wrote it as a column. And I, you know, a good column for me will get a couple thousand hits and I'll be super excited about this. Well, this is probably the most read thing I have ever written. The page views just like exploded. And then I started getting inundated with emails emails from families all across the country, from educators, all of these people from all of these different stripes. Like they were like hipsters in Brooklyn and techie people <laughs> in, in Silicon Valley and like conservative Christians in Texas and like people all over the place seeing something in this, exactly what you're talking about, this sort of associational thing of like, hey, we've got some friends and we kind of all have this problem and we'd like to figure out a way to work together to solve it all for very different reasons. Like some have very sort of conservative views about or classical educational views. Some have very progressive views about what school should look like. It was a little bit of something for everyone. And I was like, it's one of these things, our education debates are so polarized. And they can be these big debates between public schools and private schools and charter schools and all these. And it's like, actually, as it turns out, and as I write in the piece, we have public charter schools that are doing this. We have private schools that are doing this. We have public charter schools. You know, the whole waterfront is covered of, of schools that are doing this. And I was like, wow, this might actually be kind of a cool story about ways in which people are coming together as opposed to pushing each other apart. Mike, you talked about there the diversity of the different types of schools that are using hybrid homeschooling. What is your sense of how big this movement has become across the country? How much is it spread? Do you have kind of either some rough numbers or a sense of how big it is? No. The short answer is no, I actually don't know. And you would think the guy who's got the book coming out and who wrote in such an august place as National Affairs would have a better idea of how big this is. And I just have to be honest with you, I don't know. I actually don't know how big this is. It's, it's actually a very difficult thing to wrap your arms around. There's no kind of national database of these. The database that we have of things like private schools, oftentimes, you know, hybrid homeschool isn't in the name of the school. So you have to dig through their website to actually figure out what it is. Right. And most of the research and fieldwork that I've done about these schools started before the pandemic. And since the pandemic kicked off, we've seen a huge push for alternative schooling models. So whether that's some sort of hybrid, whether it's micro schools, whether it's pandemic pods, all of these things that folks in the education world have been talking about. So I think even if I had a great number of them in like March of 2020, 
you know, what they're going to look like today and what they might look like one, two, three, five years from now, I think are going to be drastically different. That's fair. <laughs> so sort of talk about that associational quality. One of the things that the essay really stresses is, is the family strengthening capacity of hybrid homeschools and community strengthening capacity as well. And one of the things that I actually really loved about the piece was that you really, a lot of this was anecdotally driven. You were surveying, talking to people, corresponding with people all over the country. And so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about maybe using some examples, the way that you saw that family strengthening capacity sort of manifest itself so, in the communities that you surveyed. For sure. So it's actually, I was planning to do a bunch of actual field work in April of last year, in April and mm. May of last year. And I <laughs> planned all of this stuff and obviously COVID scuppered all of that, but so thankful for hybrid homeschoolers all across the country who really helped me by setting up Zoom focused groups and others. So I had a chance to talk with tons of people. And this was like out of the goodness of their hearts. And I'm so thankful. I would never have been able to do the research that I've done on these things without them. But I'll tell you, these very nice people set up a focus group of parents. I agreed that they would stay anonymous. So I'll say in a Midwestern state, so sort of a school that was there. And this was in probably April of last year. So this was still kind of pretty serious, like lockdown-y type times that, that were happening. And I get called in the Zoom meeting. So obviously, I don't know any of the people that are in there. It's like seven or eight different couples that are groups of people. And we all kind of kick on to the Zoom call. You know, it starts and I'm sort of awkwardly trying to figure out how to kick off an online focus group, which I've never done before. And all of the parents just start laughing with one another and chatting with one another. And I saw you here and saw you there. And I just had this little window into this lovely little community that they had built. And when you see things like, a pandemic happening, or like an ice storm in Texas, or, you know, really difficult events that happen, you realize just how important community is. And you realize that these schools where these people really know each other, they care about each other, they're in this shared project with one another, how it really brought them closer together. They had to, just like schools and districts had to deal with all across the country, what are we going to do? We have a global pandemic. We have a school. What are we going to do? Well, because they had this incredible foundation and trust in one another and communication, you know, ways to communicate with one another, they were able to weather it really well. They're able to say, hey, look, you know, we might have to do a bit more at home. Oh, you know, I have to work. We'll send your kids over to my house or like, we're going to get through this. We're going to figure out a way or someone lost their job and they work together. And so I saw that in sort of case after case. And the folks that I spoke to was that the value, the resiliency, the sort of what Nassim Taleb talks about, anti-fragility, the kind of anti-fragility of close-knit communities that actually when terrible things happen, it actually draws them closer together. And look, obviously, I am incredibly influenced by Yuval Levin and his, you know, all of his work around sort of institution building and community. And I believe as, as he has written and has talked before, you know, people come together to do things together, right? They don't just come together to be together. They come together to do things together. And all of these folks are trying to do something like a little weird and a little different. Like, hey, we want to start this kind of weird school where you're going to have to be at home part of the time and you're going to be at school part of the time. And they found these other kind of weird people to be with. And it was yeah. just a really kind of beautiful little community that, that was together. And they, they helped each other and they were role models to each other. And part of it, too, I'm sort of gushing at this point, but... <laughs> Part of the thing, too, that I think is, is kind of unique about this is when you choose to engage in something like this in education, it requires a level of vulnerability. Mm. Like these parents have to be willing to be vulnerable with one another and say, well, I can't do this or I don't know how to do that. And they have to talk to their child's teacher or they have to talk to other parents. 
And that shared kind of vulnerability that they had with one another just opened up all of these channels to, to, to bring them closer together. That's great, Mike. So you already kind of alluded to this earlier, but beyond just the, the benefits of community and strengthening families, you talk about the idea that this could help solve some of our polarization tribalism problems in the sense that hybrid homeschools are a good model for educational cultural pluralism, I think is the term you use. Talk with us a bit more about that and how hybrid homeschools manifest that. Yeah, I mean, this is sort of broader project, and I, I, I cited some of the work of Ashley Rogers-Burner in there and Charles Glenn before her, who talked for a long time about the need for a more pluralistic education system. Because our education system right now, your state has one set of standards, right? One set of academic standards. This is what kids are supposed to learn in social studies and science and math and reading in fourth grade and whatever way you want to look at it. It's naturally a kind of ideologically adversarial situation, right? Where like, we've had all these crazy curriculum fights over time. This is how history, yeah. and we're in you know, one right now, how should history be taught? But before it's how should science be taught and sort of twas ever thus. And one way to respond to that is to continue banging our heads against one another. And if you can just get 51% of the people in your community to believe X, Y, or Z, then that's what they'll teach in your school. Another way to maybe get out of that and a way that lots of other nations around the world, the way they educate their kids is to allow for a more decentralized education system that allows for different kinds of school models to crop up, both in what they teach and how they teach, right? There are some schools, and, and I talk about them in the piece, you know, there's some very progressive kind of like Waldorf Montessori schools that are not super hierarchical, where the kids have a lot of freedom to kind of follow what interests them. And then there, there are classical education schools that are like, we need to be focusing on the great books and the less of the bike. There are other schools that are, believe in much more rigid discipline, right? And I don't think that one is right and one is wrong. And I don't think research has ever proven that. I don't know if it even could, but there's just lots of genuine differences in the way people think that kids should be educated. So for me, creating a more pluralistic education system that says, great, like if you want to have a more progressive school, dynamite. If you can get a group of people together to do it, you, you should do that. I'm not going to tell you not to do it. Now, I have my own kind of opinions about schooling. And so if people ask me for some or others, I might say, I think this is more promising than that one, but it's quite possible that I'm wrong. So allowing people that kind of freedom to associate, freedom to, to create the schools that best meet their needs, and having that kind of part of this, if we want to talk about the public policy angle of this, is allowing funding to more follow kids into the schools that educate them. Because right now, I mean, in most places, and again, the pandemic has brought this to light, you know, public schools have a kind of geographic monopoly based on where you live. That's the school that you go to. And this is just the starkest example of right now, it's like, maybe it's open, maybe it's closed based on a sort of unilateral decision by the school board or the superintendent or whatever, whether that's what you want or not. And there, I think there are people on both sides of that debate. There are folks who are afraid to send their kids to school who have to because the schools are open. And there are people who want to send their kids but can't because they're closed. Instead of saying, look, I don't know, let's have some schools be open and some schools be closed and send kids based on their sort of comfort level with that. And this is just, that's like the, a very stark version of it. But again, there's all of these other ways of, of cutting across that of how we should teach math or the level to which, you know, what school discipline policy should be. So having that more pluralistic system, I think is good for everybody. It maximizes the likelihood that people will find a school that best meets their children's needs. It can build distinct communities or allow these communities to exist where people have the same ideology. And so rather than fighting against one another, they're working with one another. And as long as we have a little bit of respect for saying, look, other people in our community might choose to educate their kids differently. And while I might disagree with what they're doing, I'm going to respect their right to do that and support them in doing that. And they'll do the same to me. I think we'll have a more effective and less adversarial school system. So I think like a lot of conservatives, you know, would be very 
excited could join you in, in, in sort of praising this model, this associationalism, this organic community building, pluralistic kind of stuff. This is like America at its best. This is fantastic. But certainly homeschooling is not without its critics. And in the piece, you reference the pretty infamous, now infamous <laughs> article by Harvard Law School professor Elizabeth Bartlett, who last year, I believe, called for a presumptive ban on homeschooling. And you also list a whole bunch of states that have taken pretty draconian measures to make homeschooling de facto sort of impossible for basically any normal family. So to take one example, right, in Pennsylvania, a parent who wants to homeschool their child has to file a notarized affidavit with detailed information about the course of study their children will follow, teach certain required subjects for at least 900 hours, arrange for a proctor to administer standardized tests, keep a portfolio of student work, and have that portfolio evaluated by a qualified educator every year. So basically, there, there are sort of two questions here. <laughs> How much is this new desire for regulation or the actual like regulatory regimes that have been implemented motivated by genuine concerns for child welfare in the mode that Elizabeth Bartlett sort of suggests that they are? And how reasonable are those concerns? So one quibble I might have with, with a bit of the framing of that is that I think some of these things are not new. Homeschooling, there have been people that have been opposed to homeschooling. Some of those regulations that you mentioned that have probably been on the books for a long time. So mm-hmm. this isn't a sort of new debate. And it's tough to know the content of people's hearts to know whether it's, you know, I think some people on more of the homeschooling advocacy side say, look, it's just school districts who are afraid of the competition. And, you know, they don't like that we do things differently than them. And so that they just want to shut us down. And then I think there are people who really genuinely have concerns about child welfare. Now, the struggle I have is that I get people having that in theory. The problem, and I think was in Professor Bartholet's article that she wrote, is there isn't a ton of evidence or systematic evidence that homeschools are more dangerous for children, that they're more apt for neglect or abuse or any of those things than traditional schools, public or private. In the piece that she wrote, it's all sort of anecdotal evidence, you know, and, and again, the cases that she brings up are shocking and horrific, and the, the people who perpetrated it should spend very, very long periods of time in jail. But an alternative piece that could do the same thing in traditional public schools, there have been horrific cases of child abuse and, and mm-hmm. assault and all those things that happen in schools. The question is sort of in aggregate, is one of those situations more dangerous than the other? And to my knowledge, and maybe some astute listener will correct me on this, but I've never found any systematic evidence that says that homeschooling is any more dangerous, nor have I found necessarily evidence that any of these additional regulations change that ultimate outcome. If you could prove to me that A, this was a problem, that the children were being neglected or abused because they were homeschooled, and B, the particular regulation that you're talking about would get rid of that, I would support it 100%, obviously, right? But I don't think either of those cases have been made. And so a lot of these have been sort of preemptive challenges. Like, I think that this could be a problem, so we'll stop it. It's like, okay, maybe, but we might also want to wait to see if there's actually a problem before we preemptively make it dramatically more difficult to homeschool your kids. Mike, one of the conclusions you make in your piece is that for either hybrid homeschooling families or just homeschool families in general to kind of fight some of these regulations and give themselves the space to implement their models, it would help if they allied with the school choice movement more broadly. But you know that there's some obstacles to that. I was wondering if you could Mention those obstacles also talk about are the ways we can kind of bridge that gap. Yeah, so traditionally, the homeschooling lobby, if you want to call it that, has been actually a very powerful and effective one. And part of that, in the sort of inverse of why things like teachers unions and others are powerful, is because there's a lot of them, right? There are a lot of people who homeschool. And so 
when new regulations are going to be drafted, there are a lot of people who they affect and will write letters. And, and, and again, I want to be very clear. There's nothing nefarious about this. Generally speaking, I agree with them in, in what they're doing. There's, so they're, they've been a very powerful force. They have oftentimes been uneasy with joining the broader kind of school choice coalition. So if I talk about the school choice coalition, it's for people who are trying to advance school vouchers, tuition, tax credits, education savings accounts, charter schools, magnet schools, sort of any of those things. Because many homeschoolers have said, we want nothing to do with the government. We don't want their money. We don't want anything. We just want to be left alone. So participating in a voucher program is you're taking government money. I mean, government money is going to the family and then it's going somewhere else. And so they say they don't want to participate in it. Fair enough. This has been a complaint of many private schools as well. Private schools have said, look, with government dollars come government strings and we don't want to participate in it. And different private school choice programs or different voucher programs, tax credit programs have different regulations related to that around the country. And, and we see that. I think more highly regulated programs that say, you know, maybe the students have to take the state test, which means you have to follow the state curriculum. And then you have a private school that says, well, like the whole reason we're a private school is because we don't want to follow that. If we did that, we'd just yeah. be a public school. So I think many of these criticisms are totally legitimate. And I get that. The sort of counter that I offer in the piece to homeschoolers, though, is when your adversaries in the political space are so powerful, and like we're seeing across the country right now, teachers unions are very, very powerful. And when they very clearly in their documents seek your destruction, right? Like basically say, I mean, I think I quote something from the NEA stuff, or whatever, that basically says homeschooling is bad and we shouldn't let people homeschool. You know, when yeah. you're in that situation, you know, finding allies who, okay, maybe we don't agree on everything, but over the broad things like your right to exist, we should try and find ways in which we can work with one another. And I think that there's so much overlap, again, as someone who puts himself very much in the school choice movement, you know, there's so much overlap between people who support school choice broadly and homeschoolers. The Venn diagram doesn't perfectly overlap with one another, but this is an opportunity to try and work together on it as many of these places as possible and then say, look, we're not going to agree on everything. And so there may be some, some bits around at the edges where we don't necessarily agree with one another, but we're on the same team here and we should try and find ways to work together. So part of the solution is going to have to be on the school choice side of this, building up those alliances between the homeschoolers and the rest of the broader movement. But you also, towards the end of the essay, get into the ways that the states might more effectively reach out to homeschooling families and the homeschool community. And you sort of cite hybrid homeschooling as a potential middle ground between homeschooling and state supervision that would actually be appealing to homeschooling families without the added element of coercion. So could you tell us a little bit about some of the programs you've seen? I know you cited in Fleming, Kentucky and the state of Michigan, they're doing some really good work. So could you tell us a little bit about what they're doing and what effect yeah. it's having? So Fleming County is a great example of this. It's a rural Kentucky county. You know, a couple of years ago, they had a large, I think they have had and had an increasingly large homeschooling population in their county. And I think they had a really forward looking superintendent who said, you know, I can look at these people as enemies, or we could look at each other as enemies, or we could say, look, we're kind of all on the same team here. Like we're on team schooling, right? We're on like team, <laughs> team education. We have a shared yeah. enemy that is ignorance. So we're trying to work <laughs> together here. So we got together a group of homeschooling families in like the school library and said, what problems do you have that maybe we could work together to solve, right? Like as simple as that. Is there anything that we can do to work together? And it turns out that, yeah, like some of the things that we've already talked about, that you had families that were, you know, uncomfortable teaching certain like higher level courses. You had some families that wanted kids to have at least some, you know, exposure to a more traditional schooling life. They had, you had some who wanted enrichment classes or sort of 
cure all of these problems that came out. And so the school district said, like, let's figure some way out to do it. And so they started this kind of performance academy. Some kids or it's like an online school. So it's not the kind of total hybrid thing that we're talking about. But some kids come in for part of the time and are at home part of the time. Michigan's done a very similar thing around part-time enrollment laws. California's done stuff. Colorado's done stuff. But where it has been successful, it has been school districts saying, how can we work together? Like, I'm not trying to like impose my vision of what education is supposed to look like on you. I'm respecting your autonomy. I'm respecting your philosophy. I just want to figure out if there's some way that we can work together with one another. That's on the sort of practice side. Now, policy needs to exist in order for that to happen, right? So a school district is not going to be able to do that if, for example, enrollment is based on seat time. So a very common thing across the state is in order for you to be like an eighth grader or to graduate from eighth grade, you have to be in your seat, like in a classroom for a certain amount of time. Well, that ain't going to work if you're going to have some kind of hybrid program, right? So the state of Kentucky, one of the reasons this works is that they have a performance-based framework where if you can demonstrate that you've learned the necessary material, you don't have to have sat for a particular number of hours. A really kind of not super complicated change to make at like the state board level or whatever level it needs to be made. And that opens up this like whole opportunity, like a whole set of things to do. It's like, oh, well, it's not seat time based anymore. So spend as much time or as little as you need. Flexible funding is part of it too. So in places like Colorado and Michigan, you can get part-time funding. So in Colorado, it's a little weird because it's sort of you either get nothing, half or full. In Michigan, it's on a more sliding scale based on how much time you're in there. And so yeah, the school's like, okay, well, like if we're going to get paid for one eighth of what you would get for a normal student, come on in for one eighth of the time. Like we can figure this out. So that piece of it as well, like the funding following students, and that's specifically on the public school side, obviously on the private school side, things like education savings accounts or others where funding is put in for families to, to spend on educational you know, schooling options or homeschooling resources or any of that sort of stuff. So there's both the practice side and the policy side, but with like not super dramatic changes, things can be made to make this more attractive across the public sector, in the public charter sector, and in the private school sector. So Mike, looking forward here, you mentioned earlier, you know, you wrote this Forbes column about hybrid homeschooling initially, and it got all this attention across the country. You also, I think, set a poll in your piece that when they pulled parents, when the pandemic started, you know, there was the thought that, oh, parents wouldn't, wouldn't like having their kids at home because they're not teachers and they don't know how to do this. But actually, it seemed like parents' attitudes were pretty favorable toward homeschooling. So going forward, what do you expect the future of this movement to be? What are things you are looking for to see how big it'll grow across the country? Well, I'll tell you something that actually really surprised me. I was worried. For the last year, there have been school districts across the country that have been doing what they call hybrid learning. Now, it was to deal with social distancing guidelines where they've had kids for part of the, you know, in for part of the week and not. And generally speaking, in many, many cases, people have hated it. Like it has not gone well. And so as the guy with the book coming out about hybrid homeschooling, I'm like getting, getting hot under the collar, like, oh boy, I don't know what's going to happen here, guys. But a couple of things that have been interesting. One is that that's not really what we're talking about here. I mean, the types of schools that I profile in, in the piece of national affairs is, you know, people who voluntarily chose to do this, right? It wasn't like, well, we can't do anything else. So you have to do it, whether you like it or not. These are people who said, I think this works for us. We want to participate in it. So do I think that this is something that like 80% of Americans are going to want to do? No, it's not going to work. You have to have lots of life circumstances and others that allow for you to happen. It's a big yeah. leap to want to do something like this. So. Now, I do think that the, the pandemic has exposed a lot of people to this. 
So I wouldn't doubt that there are some portion of people that participated in it that said, hey, if we could find some version like this, like this was actually all right, like this was okay. And we've done some polling. So I, I'm director of national research at EdChoice. We poll in, in concert with Morning Consult, nationally representative sample of Americans every month and a nationally representative sample of teachers every quarter. We publish it on our website. People should check it out because we ask them a ton of questions. And, and actually, we've been in the news a lot recently because we've been asking every month of the pandemic certain questions, how comfortable are you sending your kids back, all of that sort mm-hmm. of stuff. And for the first time, as the sort of pandemic hopefully is, is in its last gasps here, we asked this question about hybrid homeschooling. Would you like to do this in the future? I was shocked at the incredibly large number of people who said that they were open to it. I don't have the number off the top of my head, but I think it was somewhere around 40% of parents that we polled said that they would at least be open to the idea, not, not committing to it. And obviously, they're just saying it to, to a pollster. They're not saying it, you know, they're not committing their kids to it. But I was thinking, I mean, you have to take a step back for a second, and realize there are like 55 million school children in America. So even if like one or 2% of kids decide to do something, you're talking about a ton of kids. So even if 1% or 2% or 5% of families choose to to engage in something like hybrid homeschooling, that's like you're talking about the number of people in charter schools or the number of people in Catholic schools. I mean, like that shows how, how big that sector could get. So I have been surprised at just how favorable people will be of it. There's obviously the sort of policy side, the regulatory side, all of that stuff has to happen in order to make it a bit easier for people to to participate in it. But I think that the future is pretty darn bright for hybrid homeschooling. I think both because of the pandemic and because of sort of trends that were happening before that, I think it's a really attractive model for lots of different families. Well, if we could sort of just shift gears right at the end, I know I'm just a huge fan of EdChoice. And while you were here, I wanted to see if sort of selfishly, if you could tell us a little bit about some of the stuff that's going on, what's on the horizon in terms of school choice. There's been a lot of news recently about some of the stuff that's been going on in a sort of negative light in public schools in in California, but not only California anymore. My home state of Texas and Missouri recently, there was some reporting about some of the content of curricular changes that have been going on. And so I think there's sort of a sense that there's a new urgency for a lot of the work that you guys have been doing for a long time. And so in that spirit, For sure. No, absolutely. So for those that are unfamiliar, so EdChoice is a research advocacy outfit based in Indianapolis, Indiana. We, for many years, were known as the Milton and Rose Friedman Foundation. So we are the legacy organization of Milton Friedman and and his wife, Rose. And he dedicated his later years very much to educational freedom and educational choice. And he thought, you know, for a very learned man like him who'd studied a lot of things, for him to say the thing that I want to sort of be my legacy is to be educational choice sort of makes you stand up and say, we may be on to something here. So yeah, so we have been for, gosh, I think 25 years now have been advocating for, for educational choice programs. And this has been a huge year. I mean, we're still in the middle of legislative sessions right now. So it's, it sort of remains to be seen how many bills we'll, we'll get across the finish line. But I think it probably at least... 20 states across the country, there's some sort of expansion or education savings accounts programs or others that are winding their way through that at least have some chance of happening. It's a little bit of a tough time because we don't know exactly what state budgets are going to look like. And there's a lot of stuff up in the air. So people don't necessarily want to commit to starting larger programs. But yeah, big movement in places like Florida, West Virginia, Indiana, lots of things happening in lots of different places. And so, you know, it'll be really interesting in the next sort of three to four months to see. But I think you're exactly right. The pandemic has brought to light a few things. Number one, 
how fragile our education system is. I think people thought it was a lot more resilient than it actually was. I mean, you still have millions of kids all across the country who have not darkened the door of a school since March. I mean, like they're coming up on a year. There's a fair number of kids that will miss a calendar year of school. And at the same time, you have kids who've been back like basically like normal for months, right? Like, so, I mean, the, the long-term implications of that are staggering and scary and it'll be wild to see sort of what happens. It's going to, there's going to be lots of research for a very long time about this that happened here. So just that kind of fragility, but also just, I think lots of parents and others were sort of awoken to this idea that while we didn't really realize like how powerful the kind of institutional interests of public education are, right? Like we're seeing in districts all across the country, teachers unions basically having kind of veto power. The CDC says it's okay to open. You have mayors in lots of places that are fighting to get schools open again. You have even the school board sort of sympathetic, but the union saying like, nope, if we don't want this to happen, it's not going to happen. So lots of parents are saying, whoa, wait a second. I thought we were kind of all all on the same team here. We were all kind of partners. We're all supposed to be working together here. And I think it was a, a very rude awakening that the world doesn't quite work like that. And I think the last thing, I think you're right. As kids education was moved into parents' homes in the sense that it was sort of beamed into their, their homes via, you know, via Zoom or whatever platform that they're doing. I think lots of parents saw what was going on in their kids' classrooms and for lots of reasons were uneasy with it, whether it was just like it was a, of lower quality than they thought it was. I think points that you raised, like the sort of politicization of the classroom that they didn't realize was happening and makes them very uncomfortable. And I think fair number two just saw like how much time schools waste. Like that they're, they're saying, wait a second, we're getting all the content in like three hours. Well, what do the kids do for the rest of the day? Or they're watching these classes where you have disruptive kids or the teacher doesn't quite have things together. And they're like, is this what it's like during normal days? And a fair number of kids are saying, uh-huh, yeah, that is kind of what our classroom is like. And so lots of parents are saying, whoa, I didn't realize everything that was going on in schools and we need to take a kind of harder look at what's happening here. So I think lots of those trends have said, to parents, like maybe we need some different options. Maybe we had a positive opinion of what was going on here and we need to rethink that or we need to redouble our efforts to kind of hold schools more accountable or, or again, just like find a different place for our kids to go to school. So it is difficult to understate the role the pandemic has played in school choice policy and in just changing opinions about school choice. I mean, so we poll, in addition to that poll, we've been doing an annual poll of school choice and education topics, I want to say since like 2013, it's called the Schooling in America survey. You can see it on our website. The most recent iteration of that, which we did this fall, every form of school choice that we pull on, education savings accounts, tax credits, vouchers, charter schools, were at the highest they have ever polled. I mean, education savings accounts, I think, polled at like 81% of respondents supported them. And that's up from like the mid 50s in 2016. So they're at their highest. And then the other ones were no sunshine. I think they were the rest were sort of in the 70s. So, I mean, they are high and they have been rising. And so some of these trends, I think, were before the pandemic, because you can see it in the figures as they've sort of risen up. But I think the, the, the pandemic has just accelerated them. Yeah, like a lot of other things in our society. Yeah. <laughs> That's right? very interesting, For Mike. sure. No, absolutely. <laughs> wow. So that was a great conversation, Mike. We appreciate your insight, homeschools and schooling in general. And uh, thanks for joining us. Yeah, look, I am a huge fan of national affairs. Like, it's such an incredible publication. I love it so much. And so every time this, I think my second piece that I've written for National Affairs and like mm -hmm. comes in the mail and it's got that great, the paper, whatever the covers, whatever y'all do, never change that paper. It's just got the great texture to it. And then to see your name on it, it just like made my 
made my quarter. We'll say it's it's quarter. It's made my quarter. So for the, all the helps that, that, that y'all did in, in editing and getting that things, thank y'all so much. And, and it was great chatting with y'all today. Oh, thank you, Mike. It's our pleasure. If you'd like to read Mike's essay or other articles in National Affairs, please visit our website at nationalaffairs.com and consider subscribing. In addition to a printed copy of National Affairs, subscribers obtain unlimited access to our online archives. And you can listen to more episodes of our podcast by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Ricochet. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at National Affairs. Thanks for listening.